0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, as Presidents Xi and Trump meet at the G20, are we on the eve of a new Cold War? Plus, Boris Johnson's campaign has had a tough week. But is this anything more than a wobble? And last, he's had three wives and his current partner is more than 20 years his junior. But why doesn't anyone ever talk about Jeremy Corbyn's womanising streak? Well, we'll talk about it today with Melissa Kite. So first, as Donald Trump shakes hands with Chinese President Xi Jinping this week, tensions between America and China have never been so high. The Trump administration has overturned the decades-long American policy of engagement. But will its attempt at containing China lead to the next Cold War? Gerald Baker, the Wall Street Journal's editor-at-large, raises the question in this week's cover piece, and he joins us from New York together with China expert Dr. Jia Yu from Chatham House. So, Jerry, just explain the strategy of containment that Donald Trump has launched against China. What does it look like?
1: It, it takes a number of forms. Uh, the first thing to say about it is it is a pretty significant departure from US policy towards China. I think really since over the last 45 years, since Richard Nixon famously uh, went to Beijing went to Beijing and did his opening to China. The US, I think, has sought to engage China, to accommodate China's rise, and to some extent, actually, well, to a very large extent, has welcomed China's rise and, and, and actually bent over backwards to facilitate it and to enable China to grow in the way that it has. This, the, the Trump administration, has taken a pretty significantly different tack. Now, the most obvious manifestation of that is the trade Tension And the fact that the administration, Trump administration imposed tariffs on China, but underlying that is a much more profound re-evaluation in the United States under this administration of the whole China relationship with the United States. There is, you know, the, I think for a long time, part of the approach towards China was informed by a misapprehension or, or, or a, a kind of an illusion that by bringing China into the world economy by, let's say, helping to facilitate China's rise, China would become more liberal. There was this sort of rather you know, arrogant Western-centered view that we were facing the end of history and that everybody was moving towards liberal democracy and that what we needed to do was to encourage China economically and it would go in the same direction. There's been a reevaluation of that and an acknowledgement that China's rise is a... Really significant Second largest economy in the world And is on course to overtake the United States As the largest economy in the world In the next decade or so Secondly that it is not going to change uh, Anytime soon That it's not evolving towards A kind of liberal democratic model Thirdly that its model And that its approach to the world Especially under Xi Jinping In the last six years Has become much more assertive And much more aggressive Than China has been at any point Really since since the communist uh, Since the communists took over 70 years ago And so there is a belief here in this administration, rightly or wrongly, that China can no longer be um, treated in the way that it has been and needs, inf- and, is, is, and is a significant com- strategic rival, if not actually an adversary of the United States. And then in order to deal with that, the US has sought to contain China. It's looking to do a number of things. It is looking to challenge China's economy, as, we've just, as, as I've said, um, that is by forcing, China, forcing some economic changes on China through tariffs and, and, and the like. It's trying to limit China's technological innovation and growth by, for example, you know, really cracking down on China's ability to export its technology around the world and to export and to use its technology to uh, to ex- to to exploit its advantages in that area. So that hence the the Huawei decision, uh, where U.S. companies are forbidden from wor- working with Huawei, and, and there will be other there will be more. Many, many more examples of this technology, of this approach towards technology. There's a kind of political, there's, there's, a, there's an emphasis on sort of political competition. There will be much more, uh, the, the administration is focused very much on challenging China strategically, politically around the world, and strengthening alliances, echoes of the Cold War, the United States has key allies in, in Asia, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines and others. And the aim is to strengthen those alliances. And, and, and another element is direct military competition. That is, the United States, believe, uh, the people in the Trump administration believe the U.S. has allowed itself to get a little dragged behind in terms of military competition, especially in areas like cyber warfare, but also in sort of more conventional military areas. And the, and the U.S. plans to beef up its military in that respect, particularly in the region of East Asia. So so it is, again, I can't overstate how big a change this is from what the United States has done over the last 40 years. It's a, it's a real attempt to address what is seen as the biggest strategic long-term threat to United States' dominance.
0: And I'm just going to bring in Jia here. Do you think that the Trump administration has misunderstood China's ambitions? And if it has, what are those ambitions actually? Well,
2: I think the answer is partially yes and no. Trump has indeed misunderstood China regarding who's going to be the number one in the world. I mean, I think the Chinese leadership made very clear since Xi Jinping came to power, even the previous generation of the Chinese leaders saying... By no way, we would like to be the number one in the world. And all we want to do is to make sure the party is staying in power and how to make this one-party system which could possibly work for people from all part of China, you know, not just necessarily work for those who um, reach urban dwellers, but also for people who live in the countryside. So I think that's a strategic element, number one. Somehow, Trump's administration, considering China has been the competitor at the same level. By no way that is the case. But on the other hand I think Trump also understand China, especially China under Xi Jinping, because part of a try and tested recipe for Xi Jinping is to use this whole idea of national rejuvenation, the whole notion of China dream to revitalize the whole idea of China used to be in the periphery of international arena, but suddenly under his term, it somehow become the so-called Middle Kingdom, So, which is the way the return of Middle Kingdom, somehow that message Xi Jinping tried to get crossed over. But large, the worry for me from the Chinese side or from Beijing would be back to 40 years ago, we do have people like Henry Kissinger and various other more Doish face or more familiar faces to individually develop some kind of personal ties with the Chinese previous leaderships. But at the moment in Beijing, we haven't really yet found that interlocutor who will be able to communicate with Trump's administration very effectively. And also, the Chinese leadership, the Chinese elites only know certain part of America, that part of America which only read Wall Street journals, and having a degree at Harvard, and also having investment bank drops. So these are the particular elite type of, global elite type of America the Chinese government is very familiar with. But the Chinese government still are not familiar with people who have voted for Trump again and again and again. So I think that's
0: the mistake there. China doesn't necessarily understand why America is becoming more hawkish, you're saying as well, or the overall sort of the Trump method of communication is, is baffling to most people, to be fair, as well as to the Chinese.
2: I think the whole notion is inconsistency and nebulous and confusion, mostly because when Trump came to power including the Chinese leadership, believe Trump is a businessman, and therefore, as long as we'll be able to offer good deals in the business community from the United States and invest, allow them to invest it in China, and therefore, we can cultivate a much better U.S.-China relations. I mean, the talk that time was economic interdependence between the two countries at a fundamental guarantor for the strategic partnership between Beijing and Washington. But obviously that guarantor has somehow changed completely because at the moment what we have experienced is both the political elites within Washington but also certain number of American industrial groups somehow felt they've been putting in a very much unfair competition with the Chinese competitors and therefore they require changes. So I think it's also because the American has somehow underestimated how much economic growth has offered enormous confidence, almost
0: complacency, towards both the Chinese political elite as well as the Chinese wider public. Dharab, where do you think this is going to go? Is it going to lead to further tensions, even a sort of second Cold War?
1: Yes. I mean, again, sort of American strategic thinkers and policymakers inside the Trump administration are reluctant to use the terminology of Cold War for understandable reasons, there are very significant differences between China and the Soviet Union and very sig- dif- different strategic uh, challenges. But I, yes, the, the, the short answer is yes, we are in for, I think. And by the way, I do think this goes, you know, there's a tendency to think that this is all about Trump and all about sort of, you know, the kind of right wing. Republican hawks who've kind of seized control of the U.S. foreign policy making, foreign policy making parts of the administration. I think there's some truth to that, but it goes way beyond just Trump. I think there is a there's there's a broader bipartisan reevaluation of the China relationship. I mean, you know, this country is divided on pretty well everything except China actually. And you'll find uh, in the Democratic Party, the Democratic the debates, you know, that are going on, the, the the Democratic primary that's going on right now. There's almost no water whatsoever whatsoever, between what the Trump administration is doing and saying about China and what any of the leading candidates for for the democratic nomination are saying, so this is a broad based bipartisan uh, reorientation I would say of policy towards China now again it doesn 't have to lead to out and out conflict in fact, I think part of the lesson of the Cold War insofar as it does have validity is that you can avoid you know this is the, the sort of the Reagan doctrine of peace through strength that by you know it it is actually by recognizing the challenge of china standing up to the challenge of china containing it deterring uh, china from pursuing its uh, objectives more aggressively it's it's precisely by doing all of those things that you avoid conflict rather than precipitate conflict but uh, yes i think we are headed for obviously continued economic tension uh, by the way you can never you never quite know with trump we may who knows this weekend when they meet there may be a deal on the trade issue i think that's rather I think that's rather superficial. We might get some sort of a short-term trade deal. This doesn't change the fundamental strategic reorientation that we're seeing. But you will see more economic tension, you'll see uh, significant economic tension, whether it's over trade, or whether it's over technology, or whether it is over you know, opening markets, or indeed the whole nature of the Chinese economy. You're gonna see more of a willingness to challenge China in, in over issues like human rights. One of the interesting things, Mike Pence, who's the Vice President, obviously, and is I think one of the kind of key figures here, uh, gave a very important speech back in October, In which he really... It was one of the most forcefully... Kind of den- denouncing speeches that any American president has given about China in the last, thir- sorry, any American leading politician, has g- leading figures, given about China in the last thirty years, you know, attacking China on its human rights record, on its, on its, on the performance of its economy, on, on, on the way it approaches strategic issues in, in the region and elsewhere. He was due to give another speech actually this week, but it was, it was postponed because of the G20 summit. But that kind of rhetorical challenge is going to be intensified and a willingness to stand up to China's more assertive policy in parts of the world, whether it be the South China Sea, most obviously uh, in Africa and Latin America. I think the U.S. will will increasingly challenge that. Uh, And I think, yes, I think you're going to see a lot more tension over the next uh, decade or so. Presumably
0: that's going to have a knock-on effect with other countries. So do you think, Jia, that... Britain, for instance, which is is currently really debating how it interacts with China, not just on Huawei, but on other cooperation, on our energy policy as well, for instance. Do you think that Britain might take America's lead? That's certainly been a temptation for the conservative leadership contenders.
2: Well, I think it's it's a tricky issue in here because it's not just Britain alone, but for most medium-range powers in the world nowadays have to try to make sure they stay on the right side with China on economic terms. But also in terms of national security, of course they could put their trust in the hands of the Americans. So when it come to calculation, I think each single state will try to work out what exactly are their national interest lies. I mean, for example, UK or in Europe in general, and none of those countries have any geostrategic competition with China, you know, except Britain, somehow they might have some issues in the South China Sea. But all those countries somehow will have to, what they're really worried is by allowing the Chinese government projecting that sense of authoritarian values would be a threat for the democratic system and also is a a threat for its own national businesses. So the needs and wants from those mid-range countries are very different from the needs and wants from Washington, D.C., I mean, why the current British leadership do not really have a proper China policy in place? It seems to be we're now in debating this issue whenever the crisis arises or whenever the challenge arises, and therefore we have this short-termism, and therefore we need to have a short-term quick fix on China policy, rather than having a longer-term engagement or longer-term containment with China. I mean I'm just thinking how much this government has switched from the so called golden era into something rather ambivalent. At the end of the day, if Britain will be able to negotiate proper criteria or collaboration criteria with the Chinese and put those rules on the table, and I'm sure Beijing would have to respect it because at the end of the day, Beijing is in much weaker position compared with the United States in terms of um, economic competition and also in terms of military competition and not even to mention in terms of global alliances in here. And China, what is trying to do is trying to cultivate as many partner as they can in order to secure its domestic economic interests. So at the end of the day, I think we're now in that very tricky era. We're considering maybe China, being this gigantic actor, seems to be able to capable of doing many things, but weaknesses are within its own domestic system. Thanks, Jerry, thanks Gia.
0: Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's vintage chef, and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website, where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema, and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. Next, when Boris Johnson's campaign cheered for Jeremy Hunt making it into the final two, they didn't think that the members round of the Tory leadership contest would be quite so tough. But instead, Boris has spent the week battling off media scrutiny in an attempt to put out the fire of the Carrie Simmons row. And Jeremy Hunt has also proved a less pliant opponent than predicted. But James Forsyth writes in this week's political column that this is nothing more than a wobble and that Boris needs to set his mind on his first days in office. He joins me now together with Camilla Tominy, The Telegraph's associate editor. So, James, you write in the magazine this week that the Tory leadership contest is starting to look like an actual contest. What do you mean by that? Well,
3: when the MPs were voting in the final round, Jeremy Hunt said, send me through to the final and I'll put Boris Johnson through his paces. It made him sound more like a personal trainer than a political opponent. But since the contest has actually started, Jeremy Hunt has been much punchier, I think, than... Boris Boris Johnson campaign expected. It's worth remembering that when it was confirmed it was Jeremy Hunt who was through to the final two, not Michael Gove. There were huge cheers in Boris Johnson's office. And Boris Johnson has had a kind of stumble early on in the campaign. I think a mixture of complacency, a certain kind of uncertainty about who was in charge after the MPs' round had ended and the members' round starting, and this whole kind of incident at its partners' flat. Which I think has kind of distracted the candidate and put a whole bunch of negative headlines out there. It's all kind of combined to a kind of fairly uncertain couple of days, but I think you see now that Boris Johnson has kind of got back on track in a way and it's I think it's Jeremy Hunt who is making mistakes, you know I think calling 31st thirty first October a kind of fake deadline was a mistake, and I think the idea that the any suggestion that Brexit is about Little England is a kind of third rail in the Tory party. And so even if that's not what he was saying, the fact that is what has been represented as having said, is, I think, a problem for him.
0: Camilla, do you think then that though Boris Johnson might have had more dramatic headlines over the past few days, it's actually Jeremy Hunt who's having the wobble?
4: Well at the moment I think um, the campaign is back on track for Boris Johnson for two reasons. I think Ian Duncan Smith's introduction as campaign chief is a good idea because it allows Boris to be Boris and there had been a lot of talk that during the scandal involving the police row at the flat Boris had lost his mojo and actually he's brilliant as a campaigner and Those images that we then saw emanating out following on from the Carrie and Boris at the picnic table shot, so the Andrew Parsons shots of him being licked by the dog and out on a park bench speaking to the public, very much plays into this image of him as being the hero with the Tory grassroots. And they've got to keep on hammering that home because the campaign don't want any suggestion that he isn't way ahead uh, with the membership because that's what the entire second phase of the campaign is predicated on. Jeremy Hunt made another misstep last night and a number of Tory MPs contacted me about it and we got it online and into the Telegraph late on. This idea of equivalence between Northern Ireland veterans and IRA terrorists went down extremely badly. James Heapy, who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, I appreciate a Boris backer, but phoning me going, goodness me, this is Theresa May in trousers. Continuity May making the same mistakes. That's going to be the key attack line when it comes to campaigning going into the next hustings.
0: So it looks as though Boris Johnson is still on course to not just win, but win big, James. But you say in your magazine column that he's unlikely to last particularly long.
3: I don't think I'm not saying he's unlikely to last particularly long. I think the difference is this. Is in this campaign, Boris Johnson has enough room, he's far enough ahead, that he can make a few errors, correct those errors, stumble, get back up again and still win. When he's in number 10, he'll have very little room for error he's on an incredibly tight timetable you know there'll be 99 days from the day he becomes prime minister to october the 31st when that is the date which he said you know the uk has got to be out of the eu do or die so i think that that is the big challenge and basically in this campaign he can make mistakes and still win as prime minister he won't be able to make mistakes and survive them
4: come do you agree with that I agree with that. And I also think that's why Eddie Lister's been drafted in to plan the first 100 days. And that's not them being presumptive. It's just them being prepared. This idea that actually the real challenge for Boris is going to be governing and governing while a number of MPs are plunging knives into his back. I mean, he thought Michael Gove was a problem. I think Gove will be lucky if he remains at DEFRA, best case scenario at this stage. Not, by the way, because Boris... Harbours that much personal animosity, but he still feels very bruised. There's been suggestions, Fraser Nelson in The Spectator has said Boris's problem is that he's too concerned with being liked. And there's also been suggestions that he's been not promising people jobs, but when people have asked to take on extra responsibilities, he's let about five of them do so because he can't say no. And then that's led to tensions. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who said, contrary to such reports, actually Boris knows exactly what he wants. He's extremely ambitious and he's got the ideas. All of these people trying to curry favour with who has Boris's ear are a bit misjudged, really. He's got a plan, but the point is he needs the support to execute it. Not only are the first 100 days of planning important, and as you said in your piece, James, this idea of landing really, really big policy ideas that play very well with the Tory electorate should the time come for a snap election, but equally to have the right team on side. He doesn't want to be firefighting within Cabinet and have a situation like Continuity May with people leaking stuff from Cabinet meetings to people like me and James.
3: I think it's quite telling, though. The position he has come to is quite sensible. He's not going to require people to say... I'm in favour of no deal to serve in the cabinet, because I think that would make his cabinet too narrow. What he is going to say is, you've got to sign up to the fact that we're leaving on October the 31st, even if a new deal can't be negotiated in that time frame. And I think that probably is what gives him sufficient cabinet unity, that you've not got people constantly saying, oh, why don't we go for an extension, or why don't we do this, why don't we do that? but you're not you're not making your cabinet look sectarian it would still have a kind of broad enough reach across the party to hold the party with this very small majority together.
0: And Camilla, you mentioned drafting in Eddie Lister to plan the first 100 days, and every Prime Minister needs an inner circle. I think one of Theresa May's weaknesses is that she's never really had one, and and she lost the inner members, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, after the the
4: 2017 election. So what would Boris Johnson's inner circle look like? Yes, as Thatcher said, everyone needs a willy in relation to Willie Whitelaw, and (laughs) and is Lister, the new willy is IDS. There's a team there and um, I think on the inside we're going to see some of the staunch supporters. I wrote a piece this morning suggesting that Matt Hancock is now in the frame to be Chancellor along with Sajid Javid and Liz Truss. We know that he's appointed Truss as his Director of Policy. There's other MPs that are up and coming, rising stars like Rishi Sunak working behind the scenes. What he has assembled is a team of realists who appreciate that if a snap election happens Boris is the only person that can win for the Conservatives and that actually does also weaken Hunt's position on this, because Hunt appears to be running scared of an election. He's basically saying, if there's an election, Jeremy Corbyn will be let in. And I think the appeal from Boris to MPs is, hang on a minute, we need to be elected. In the past administration, particularly with Chancellor Philip Hammond, who's plugged on about austerity when it's been widely unpopular, talked about nothing about funding to school funding when it's been talked about in the tory shires the playgrounds of the tory shires i think boris's approach is going to be can we actually start coming out with stuff that is going to see us elected if there's a snap election or even in 2020 and funny enough that does galvanize mps because generally mps want to keep their seats and keep their jobs
3: i think this is one of the the funny things is the polling industry has had all sorts of trouble over the last few years but how the polls react to Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister is going to be absolutely critical. Because if the Tories get a bounce that takes them up to, say, you know, the magical heights of 30-odd percent, which would put them ahead of everybody else, then I think he, Boris Johnson will have both more authority over his own party. Tory MPs begin to think, well, I'm going to give this a chance because it appears to be working. And also, crucially, I mean MPs in other parties will be more wary of a general election. They'll be less inclined to say, let's pull the government down because they'd be more worried that in that snap election, the Tories could come back with what they don't currently have at the moment, which is a proper majority.
0: Thanks, Camilla and James. And last, Boris may be a womaniser, but he's certainly not the only one in Westminster. Melissa Kite writes in this week's issue that Jeremy Corbyn has as colourful a love life as Boris, having been married three times, the latest to a woman more than 20 years his junior, and that's not to mention his previous relationship with his colleague Diane Abbott. So who is Casanova Corbyn? Melissa joins me down the line together with Paul Staines of the Guido Fawkes blog in the studio. So Melissa, for those listeners who, who don't know very much about Jeremy Corbyn's love life, can you just get us up to speed with his, his racy background?
5: Well, I wasn't um, too up to speed with it myself, to be honest, because there's not all that much written about it. And I would actually, my preference would be to not know anything about any of them because I'm not that bothered. But because we're so fascinated by Boris, I just thought it was a bit like double standards to not have a good look at the Labour leader as well, and there has been a few things written about. There's been a book by Tom Bauer, which is really interesting. And it turns out that Jeremy has quite a bit in common with Boris, if truth be told. I think it looks like that they're remarkably similar in many ways.
0: Paul, why do you think that there hasn't been as much interest in Jeremy Corbyn's love life? Is it partly because one of his exes said that some of his offending characteristics included boring things like eating baked beans out of the tin? And it's, <laughs> it's just not that exciting.
6: Yeah, I can't imagine him being quite excited. But he clearly does have an active uh, libido because there are... There are loads of stories, and when I'm sort of flushing through my mind when I was coming over here, you know, that, you know, obviously there's the famous Diane Abbott instances and the, the trek across uh, uh, East Germany with her on the back of a bike. Then there was, when he got into power, if you remember, I think the Mail had somebody going all around South America looking for a, a legendary love child, and there was. But, you know, people trekking half of Fleet Street around Central America and South America looking for this legendary love child. We never know if it's true or not. And he, he likes them to be exotic from what we gather as well. You know, there's no white working class women in his uh, love life. They're always some exotic radical background invariably.
0: Now, Melissa says she, she would rather not know about any
6: politician's love lives.
0: I suspect you might have a different view on this, Paul. What
6: everyone says, you know, no one reads the horoscopes, no one reads the diary columns. Yeah, any editor who took out the horoscope or the diary column would be in a lot of trouble. Of course, people like to say, oh, I'm not interested. Well, I've made a very lucrative career out of people being <laughs> interested in what they deny being interested in. So I don't, I don't believe that
5: well of course we do read it and of course i'd be lying if i said i hadn't re- read it I, I i sort of read it raising my eyebrows and th- sort of oh my goodness here we go and of course it is interesting but i think if we're going down that road of well we're not going to record people through the walls having a normal domestic row because that's interesting i think we've got to be very careful about that the other thing i would say is whilst i don't Particularly want to sort of know about everything. I do accept a lot of people do find it entertaining. I do think that I want politicians in power who are like normal people, in the sense that they have the same problems we all have, right? So they have rows, and they have maybe a couple of marriages, and they get divorced, and they do all the stuff that we all do in modern society now. None of us have perfect love lives, apparently. And we have all this um, everything goes kind of, um, you know, philosophy now. But on the other hand, we say, oh, no, no, it's terrible that Boris has had a row with his girlfriend. But to me, you can't have it both ways. I think it should be the case that we all welcome the fact that politicians are all going through the same, you know, messy stuff that that we do because they are going to represent us after all. Paul, do you think if
0: there were two female candidates for the Conservative leadership and one of them had, had the sort of personal life that, that Boris Johnson has had, that they would get a, a tougher ride from the media?
6: I think they would get an equally tough ride. I mean, if... If Liz Truss had been a candidate, I think we'd all be looking into her exotic history as well. Sorry, Liz. So I don't think it would be treated any different.
5: But whilst it whilst it's entertaining, and I do, I do, it, there's a horrible allure about it, and I do feel pulled in. Of course, we all do it because it's entertaining. But you know, the, the sort of common sense part of my brain tells me that expecting politicians to be different than the rest of the population is is a hiding to nothing. Are we really saying that we've all got very tidy love lives, and we've all, we all, none of us have messy rows? And it, it just seems to me to be going down a huge detour that isn't going to get us anywhere. And if you look at great leaders in history, pick, pick, pick whichever one you want. If we'd analysed their private lives at the time and tried to make them conform to some puritanical standard of never having a row, I doubt we'd have got very far with very many you know, wars and things that they had to lead us out of. I don't think of, anyone's so.
6: disputing that. You know, it it's the same with the royals. We're interested in their failings because it reminds us they're human just like us. And that's what fascinates the popular culture. So the, I don't think anyone pretends that politicians are on some other higher level than the rest of us. But
5: it's one thing, isn't it, to be fascinating, but this is not people being fascinated per se. It's people saying you know, the criticism was that because this has happened, Boris Johnson isn't fit to be leader. And so that my piece about Corbyn was obviously a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But what I, the point I was trying to make is, well, if Boris isn't fit to be leader because he's had a row with his girlfriend, then maybe we should look at the rows Corbyn had with his spouses who say that he did this and that to them and they weren't very happy about that. But the point I'm making is, is that not... A very irrelevant path to go down.
0: Paul, do you think that there is something we can learn about the way a politician behaves in their personal life? Aside from hypocrisy, uh, I mean, there's the obvious well, charge of you put do, your family on your leaflets. I
6: do have an old-fashioned view of this, and I've said it before, and I stick to it, that a man who lies to his wife is likely to lie to the voters. And I'm afraid that is my view. And I, I, in my experience, it turns out to be true.
5: Yes, but can I just say, how do we know who's lying to their wives? So you're making an assumption that, from what you're saying, I don't know, you're saying somebody who lies, well, yeah, fine, but we're not looking at... What Jeremy Hunt's saying to his wife, we're not are we gonna categorically go through everybody and analyse to make sure they haven't lied to their wives? I mean, people could be lying to their wives all over the place. Well, the that fact like that a Boris's life you. is messy and it all spills out and we see the mess doesn't mean he's lying to his wife any more than anyone else.
6: I suspect he is lying to his wife, <laughs> 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 you know. You don't get through three marriages without having told a few fibs on the way.
0: We're talking about Corbyn here, just to
6: clarify. Oh, either of them doesn't matter, does it? Okay.
0: And Melissa, there are obviously a a lot of women who have managed to find Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn attractive based on the the number of relationships they have had. Can you understand the appeal? Well, I thought
5: that was interesting because um, I find myself, as I admit in the piece, sort of unfeasibly, um, un- unfeasibly some would say, attracted to Boris, because I think, you know, he's got that kind of um, floppy hair, puppy eyed kind of, you know, oh, I've made a mess, but aren't I lovable kind of look, and I... Think that's quite endearing, actually. Maybe um, in a dog, less I than find a boyfriend, hard perhaps harder to be attracted to to Jeremy Corbyn. But I've got loads of girlfriends who say that they sort of are. I mean, the mind boggles. But there we go. Who 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 can say?
0: Thanks, Melissa and Paul, and that's it for this week. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in this episode, as well as more from Niall Ferguson, Conrad Black, and Anthony Horowitz. And one last thing: What do you think of the Spectator podcast? We'd love to hear from you, our listeners, on what we're doing well and what we could be doing better. Send in your thoughts to podcast at spectator.co.uk. We can't always reply, but we promise that they will be read. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week.